If you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing anything. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You try to tell it like this is it. This just isn't very good. I mean, I'm nothing against any, the person that wrote this. Or, but it like, doesn't stick with you. Yes, exactly. Heather's made me swear not to bring up The Last Jedi in our household anymore. <laughs> name three characters from Star Wars. Bam, bam, bam. But as that said, now yeah. name three characters from Avatar. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built nerd culture. And boy, howdy, do I have a good show for you. Here with me is mega New York Times bestselling author David Weber, a legend in the field of science fiction famed for his Honorverse series of novels, as well as almost 80 titles across various genres, putting out over half a million words every single year. That's just crazy. With him is co-writer and a fellow anime and Xenogears stan, Jacob Hollow. Today, we're going to have a lot of fun. We are going to talk about time travel and what makes a great science fiction story. Of course, their new book the writing process, and if they could save any one pop culture nerd franchise, any one at all, which would it be? Star Trek? Perhaps Doctor Who? Maybe even a video game franchise? Well, my friends, to find out, you will just have to watch and see. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you Great for to having be here. us. I'm glad we could uh, make it work. Uh, summer always makes scheduling a little weird, so I appreciate you doing that. So, uh... Please introduce uh, yourselves to my audience. Tell us a little bit about this book project. So starting with you, David. Okay. Um, I'm David Weber, and I sold my first novel in 1989. So I've been doing this for a while. I did war game design uh, before that. Um, I write about a lot of different things, <laughs> uh, including time travel and dimensional travel, which is what the Veltal file is is really you know all about my name is jacob Apollo, and uh of the uh hundred or so books the uh uh most of them are not mine <laughs> uh most of them are david's uh so i've i've been in this industry uh not nearly as, as long as david um i uh, uh i do have a background in engineering uh i have a degree in electrical and controls engineering uh minors in mathematics and computer science i've been in the uh, automotive industrial sector for 20 plus years um currently work for bmw uh which is a job i enjoy greatly um but i also uh enjoy writing i've enjoyed um telling stories um started writing from a very early age was writing really terrible uh novels uh in uh, uh high school and i just kept writing and eventually i uh, got to the point where uh david uh invited me to collaborate with him on uh, the what became the gordian protocol um and the the funny thing is that um david uh I didn't know at the time that uh, I had once uh, sworn to myself that I would never, ever, under any circumstances, uh, write time travel. And uh, so when he suggested that we write a time travel novel together, um, I, I sort of struggled with, with how to, to you know, uh, explain the situation to him. And so my response went something like, well, yes, David, I think that's a wonderful idea. <laughs> 
and what? we're we've had four books published. The fifth one comes out in November, and I'm getting pretty close to finishing the first draft for number six. So mm -hmm. it's been really, really a good uh, writing partnership. Um, I am a historian by training. Uh, and so when we start building worlds together, uh, we bring different strengths uh, to the table. And, you know, Jacob was like, he likes to say, you know, I said, go away and invent the technology for the two sides in the Gordian Protocol. I, yet I, we knew what the story had to do. This is actually a story concept that I pitched to Jim Bain back at the same time that I pitched the first of the Honor Harrington stories to him. Oh, and he wow. picked Honor Harrington instead. So I've been waiting to write it for a while. So we knew, I knew very much where the story needed to go. And so we talked about it. It's like, okay, this is what the technology needs to accomplish. Now go and make it accomplish it. And he was kind of like, oh man, kid in a candy store. What can I? So he just kind of rolled up his sleeves. He said, I know he's going to make me throw half of this out. You know, he goes, blah, 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 blah. and he brings it all to me. And he says, what do you think? And I said, I think it's really good. He <laughs> was like, wait, wait, wait. But the thing is that it is very, very good. It's very well thought out. The engineer in him shows, okay? And he does what good science fiction writers do and bad science fiction writers don't do is he considers the logical implications of his own technology. That's a serious mistake that a lot of people make when they are laying out uh, a universe. They don't think about where it's going to go. If you think about Star Trek, for example, okay, they went with the transporter because it meant they wouldn't have to do a lot of shuttle travel and everything else. But then they had to break it in every single episode because with that technology available, it was really hard to come up with a problem they couldn't solve. Okay. That was, they had considered the logical implications of the technology that they had provided for their universe. Um, and you can see that very clearly in Next Generation in the uh, the uh, season-ending finale where they're trying to rescue Picard from the Borg and the Borg cube is approaching Earth. You know, they've been bopping on and off the, the Borg ship and the Borgs are resetting their personal shields against their phasers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would have loved to have seen the Borgs reset their personal phasers against, say, 15 pounds of antimatter, which they happen to have in the warp nacelles that they could have just beamed aboard because they beamed it out into space to explode okay and i was like i see a slight logic fault here and for me that's one of the things that writers need to really be aware of that creators need to be aware of and jacob jacob is aware of that and that's a really good thing but it doesn't keep him from doing really neat stuff you know <laughs> I, I think that's an excellent point. It's something I want to break into. I, I'm curious, though, uh, uh, Jacob, you said you had hesitancy or you never wanted to work on a time travel star. I'm curious as to why that is. Well, um, one of the things is that I, I think that um, part of it is I didn't want to deal with time travel's drama, so to speak. Um that there there certainly are a lot of opportunities with uh, dealing with time travel to tie yourself in knots and to create problems or to create a tool set that is too powerful that um, can basically solve anything or any number of problems can can arise from from using it. And time travel is from a 
you know, toolkit for the character standpoint, a very, very powerful tool. Um, and one of the things that um, I've had an issue with, not, not all portrayals of time travel, but some of them, is um, uh, the sequence of events or, or sequence of interactions. And so you have like, you know, someone goes into the past and interacts with the time. And then later on in, in the show or the book or whatever, uh, someone else goes back in time and interacts with the timeline. Okay. What is the mechanism that uh, applies in order to those events? What makes one happen first and the other one happen second? And most of the time it's like, well, that, those are, that's the sequence that we watch the movie in, or, or that's the, the sequence that the pages are in. And there really isn't, you know, something underpinning what, um, you know, some sort of mechanism to enforce uh, a series of events on the time travel manipulation. A uniform, a uniform time clock that they have to ob observe. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we have in the Gordian Division series is that we have a concept called the true present. And so there is a point in time, and in this case, it's the 30th century. It's essentially the quote-unquote modern era for, for these books. And there's no future past that. So that point in time is moving forward one second per second. So if you go back in time for, say, a month, spend a month back in, you know, the Byzantine Empire and then come back, um, it's a month later. And so that gives us a master clock by which to sequence all of the drama that happens. Well, the other thing is, and this was something that we we had to, to tinker with uh, the concept is simple enough, okay, but it's something we actually, in many ways, we made time travel into a liability for the for the uh, societies that have it. Only two of them so far have survived discovering it, <laughs> if you will. Um, but the the thing is that the belief of the folks in uh, in Siskov, where our our good guy, if you will, time travelers in the first book come from, um, is that you can't change the past. They have empirical evidence that they can't change the past. They go back, they they loot the library of Alexandria to save the books, and they go back and they look, and it's still there. Okay, well, what they don't realize is that their theory is got a slight flaw in it, and just in fact, one. just a teeny one, uh, and in fact, you can change the past, but not your own past. So you can split off a divergent timeline. I've used that before in a couple of three places in the uh, the Apocalypse Troll, which was like my, my the first solo novel that Bain bought from me. The characters going back into the past realize that going back into the past cannot affect what happens to their own civilization, to their own timeline, but that there is another civilization that they can save possibly if they go back. Okay. And that is sort of baked into the, the Gordian Protocol universe, but they don't know it until they have this teeny, tiny accident in, in the first book uh, that uh, I think it was 15 universes were going to go poof in 10 years, uh, 10,000 years if they didn't straighten it out. Yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, just no pressure, no pressure. You don't have anything here, here to worry about. But that too, I think, from the gleam in Jacob's eye upon occasion, I think that helped him 
adjust to the notion that we were going to be doing time travel too, that nobody was going to go back there and, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to kill my grandmother and then I'll be fine, you know, kind of thing. Because you can't do that in your own timeline. Nothing you do in your own past can affect your timeline. It can only, if the change is sufficient, split off a timeline in which it happens to somebody else entirely that you'll never know. I love this conversation. I mean, I've read uh, pulpy, you know, pop science fiction stories for as long as I can remember. You know, Doctor Who being one prime example. I love a I love a good time travel story when it's handled well. But you are correct. I think what we're seeing right now with Marvel and the the MCU, I think, I mean, they have plenty of issues going on. It it seems like Bob Iger really got a monkey's paw to get back into the CEO spot because like everything he does now somehow goes wrong. Uh, it's almost enough to make you feel sorry for him. Uh, uh, almost. <laughs> um, I heard that. I heard that. <laughs> well, the part that we, we, we do blame all that stuff and that's fair. Everything going on with King and now um, I can't even pronounce the, the, uh, the man's name now that has an allegation against him. Uh, but I think they got themselves into much trouble earlier, and that probably was in, in 2018 and then into 2019 with um, Infinity War and Endgame because the solution to those movies for the big 20-spanning movie problem was time travel. But it, but it kind of put the MCU in this position where it's like, okay, you've done that, now what? And then they wanted to move on directly to the only thing that's probably worse for fretting, trying to, trying to keep... Uh, canon and continuity together to tell a clear story, which is dimension hopping. It's alternate dimensions. It's like once you've done that, it's like nothing matters. You could you could do whatever you want. I don't really care because it's like, yeah. why does it matter? There's always going to be another dimension. There's always going to be some kind of magical MacGuffin bill to grab. The stakes no longer feel concrete. Well, and and the other thing with you know having a kind of uh, many worlds approach to a, a multiverse setting, you know, where you have like, you know, every decision, you know, br branches and you have infinite numbers of possibility is that then anything that, you know, your protagonists and antagonists do doesn't matter. Any achievement that they, they, they have doesn't matter because the opposite happens somewhere else. Well, so the, in the Norfressa universe, I kind of capitalize on that's what that's my fantasy universe, because in the Norfressa universe, the reason that there are all these multiple universes is because creation shattered at an earlier point, and it's trying to knit itself back together. And the way in which it knits back together will be decided by the weight of the light and the dark in universes that resolve in their favor, if you will. And so in one sense, what any given character at any given moment does doesn't matter at all, but it is the weight of all of those characters making their decisions, which will govern how things finally work out. That's one way that you can make the multi-world thing work for you. But there's another problem with a lot of the multi-world uh, thinking, and I've Eric Flint and I talked about this a lot back when we back when he was just first launching 1632 and we were going to do 1633 and 1635 together. Um, and that is 
if you change one single thing in the universe, everything changes after that point because all the decisions, all the, 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 the possible outcomes are back in flux. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a lot of alternate history, they say, well, John Wilkes Booth, okay, didn't die. All right. Or he, he didn't kill Lincoln and everything else happened just the way that it would have happened, except that Lincoln lived. And you're going, no, does it work that way? You know, I don't even need to be a historian to know that much, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the engineer gets that. <laughs> but but the, but the, the but the thing here is that um, in the in the Gordian Protocol, that's actually a major plot point because the one character who has memories before these two universes get split is the result of the same two gametes being fertilized in these two different universes after the after the time fracture and you know we figured it was like yeah it's got to be a, a a finite possibility but how many and so we finally decided i think what there were 16 out of all the folks on all these you know and, and some of them were just completely nuts because yeah because they, they had these two sets of memories they and... yeah you know but but that was that was one of the places where we made it work for us and it also let us establish early on that in this universe, if you actually change something, everything from that point forward is going to be different, which okay. is actually a major plot point also in uh, the in the Valkyrie Protocol. The J yeah, the Valkyrie Protocol. Yes. I was going to say the Janus Protocol, but there's not a Janus Protocol. There's a Janus oh, file. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of books, David. It's hard to keep them all track. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know... I absolutely hate it. It just seems like so much of the major pop culture uh, fiction that like wants to do time travel. It just seems so lazy. I think of the the no, I'm trying to think. It's the Timeless Child, which is the Harry Potter book sequel. That's a stage play that wasn't actually written by J.K. Rowling. Yep. And the uh, the conceit in that one is they're able to go. They can time travel for like five to ten minutes. I forget what it is. But, and that's all they can do. They can never go back and they can affect it. So the, the conceit of the book is they go to they, the, the children of Harry Potter. This is a, I've, anyone doesn't want to hear this, this spoiler for like this eight-year-old <laughs> thing, you know, you know, skip ahead now. But uh, the conceit is they save Cedric Diggory's life, who's the, who's the Hufflepuff kid that gets murdered in, at the uh, end of the fourth book. And then they come back and it's like Nazis everywhere. Like everything is Voldemort. It's like... Uh, it's 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 just so it's just so beyond ridiculous because you're like so some ran just little above just a little above random fourteen year old doesn't die and now all of a sudden we're okay guys but see but see everything everything changes from that point um, there's a novel by uh, uh, James P Hogan which was written. Gosh, probably in the late 80s or the 90s. I haven't checked the date, but it's called Thrice Upon a Time. Okay. And it's about these guys who discover time travel, but they can only go back, you know, uh, X amount of time and they can only communicate back to like the base computer. All right. Um, and it's really interesting because 
the, the American who is the nephew of the British scientist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who is here working on this meets the, the gorgeous girl and the, 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 uh, the fusion plant in Scotland is producing many black holes that they ultimately realize are going to destroy the earth. But they, they, there's, there's a plague and they use the computer to reset, to tell people about the plague. And then the two of them never meet. Okay. And then something else happens and the team that's developed time travel sends a warning back. Everything resets going forward and they meet. And finally they realize that, uh, it, yeah, it, it, you do this like, like three times. Um, and the last one, actually the last one is when they actually do meet again, but that's the one in which they discover the entire world is going to be destroyed by the miniature black holes that have been burrowing to the center of the earth from Scotland. And it's reached a point where they can't turn it off and it's beyond their, the reach of their program. So there's nothing they can do about it. And then they realize actually there is, and they bootstrap it, Jacob, back through computers with the with the loop to mm -hmm. before this whole thing happened um it's really an intriguing look at consequences of time travel and parliament is like okay how are we going to deal with this the the prime ministers is saying okay look okay we'll never have a major research project that doesn't work because we can fund it we could do everything you know and they can tell us whether or not it worked and if it doesn't work we'll reset and everybody's like, but, 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 you know, and he says, look, you've already been reset three times that we know of. <laughs> you know? It's, it's a really interesting uh, look at it. Um, and I have to say that uh, there are a couple of Jim's books that kind of affected how I looked uh, at things when I started writing, writing science fiction. Um, uh, Two Faces of Tomorrow, uh, this one, um, the Giants of Ganymede series. If 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 your Peter, if your younger readership hasn't found Jim Hogan, they really need to go take a look for him. I'll just say that. Sorry. No, you're Wandered fine. Off if, into the weeds. You're fine. No, let let's 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 uh, make this fun. Okay, so um, you guys tell me first. Tell me uh, what is a a popular culture property that does time travel. Ooh. It does it really badly. And then tell me one that you think handles it really well. We'll start with Jacob. I know I'm putting, I'm putting the pressure on you. I just told you, I, did, I just told you to do something. I'm not giving the, the little gerbils that run your brain a chance to that, figure that, it out. That does it really badly. Um, yeah. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, geez. Um, I'm 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 trying to pick what I want. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll uh, I'll give you a little bit to think, and I'll just share yeah, mine, yeah. and then okay, okay. One that does it really badly, I would say, is New Doctor Who. So anything after Capaldi left, and even when Capaldi was there, so like anything after 2014, this is how I kind of feel like it is in comics too, where science fiction, the time travel doesn't actually mean anything as a device; it's just kind of an excuse to do things in the story and there's not really any logic to anything that really happens. Um, and I being a huge, huge, huge Doctor uh, Who fan, uh, that is like one of the top things that has always bothered me. 
I, I just, I feel like if you have a mechanism in your story, like time travel it has to mean something. There has, like you explained both of you, like there has to be clear rules and consequences for what happens. Otherwise, like why care? Um, a story I think that handles time travel really well, I'm going to say Steins Gate, which is a visual novel slash anime. It might be one of the best time travel uh, stories I think I've seen in quite a long time. And basically, what they do for time travel there is he, he has a, a, a time traveling toaster, basically, and he can make only very small edits. And when he makes them, it's like you're just saying a little bit of information to a different you, you know, 10 minutes ago or a day ago. And so he, 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 he makes a mistake and he ends up in, uh, I'm not using the right word, but it, a, a, a timeline he doesn't want to be in. And so to try to get back to his original one, he can only make these small edits each time. And it's like you were saying, because in the story, basically, he's in he's in a whole new place. I mean, it's, uh, look, they're all they they are all the same people mostly, but you know, it's not quite the right world. So every time you flip it, though, you know, you just those are real people you're affecting, so that you can go to a whole different one. And it's a really clever uh, story altogether. I know not everyone is into anime, but if if they were willing to uh, stomach such a concept, I think that would be my pick. All right, was that enough? Was that enough time? Yeah, okay. Ready to go? Right, I, okay. I got, I'm, I'm ready. I, I had time to think. Thank you, Peter. Uh, <laughs> okay. So um, actually, um, my uh, the, the one that I, I, I think does it poorly, and I'm going to preface this by saying I, I do really enjoy a lot of Doctor Who. Um, but when, when you have, you know, uh, and, and there's a certain whimsy to a lot of the, the really good Doctor Who that I, that I enjoy greatly. Um, but he also has, you know, a, a time machine. And it's not just a time machine, but it can just basically teleport anywhere, anywhen. And it's like, why aren't you using this very powerful tool to solve these problems? And, you know, it's... <laughs> And, and sometimes, you know, okay, the TARDIS just acts a little temperamental. Why? Because the plot requires it to? Okay. And it's so that we can have, you know, the, the monster of the week and they're stuck there and whatnot. Okay. But, but yeah, I, I, I think Doctor Who could probably handle its time travel a little bit better. The one place that um, it, it's, it's a, so in terms of utilizing time travel well, um, it, in Alistair Reynolds' um, Revelation Space series, uh, time travel is utilized very subtly. Um, and it's primarily utilized by one of the, the more advanced factions to send messages back to themselves uh, in, in the past, warning them about essentially the the technological cosmic horrors that they've run into is like don't do this guys <laughs> yeah. the limiters are going to come for you and they're going to kill everyone try something else <laughs> and um i i you know it's it's um it doesn't you know it's it's like I said, it's subtle. It's it's not an overbearing part of the world building or or the story. Yeah. It's but but it is a really interesting part of the lore that he's built 
uh, in, in the Revelation space series. And I like it a lot. I like that series a lot just in general. Well, I have to say that I don't spend anywhere near as much time with the electronic media as a lot of people do, mainly because it's a time sink. If I get involved with it, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, actually one of the first series that I saw that I thought handled time travel pretty well was Quantum Leap. No. Because he's actually doing time travel, leaping from one personality to another all over his backstory and everything else. So that is a time travel situation, which is totally focused on the character in and the characters. It gives them a, 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 a platform in which they can constantly bring new characters, new situations in and move them on. But at the same time, the central character is constantly growing and changing and evolving. Okay. I thought another place, Star Trek has a very spotty record for dealing with time travel. Just okay, a little let's, bit. let's just let's just put it that way. But they absolutely killed it in the original Star Trek with City on the Edge of Forever. Okay. And with Yesterday's Enterprise in um in the new Star Trek. They absolutely killed it in both of those episodes. Then they had to do the whole sequence with Tasha's half Romulan daughter because they had Denise Crosby under contract for additional episodes. But the, the whole sequence there, and it, to me that was particularly poignant because I thought they never understood Tasha's character when, they were, when, they, when she was an ongoing character in the, Enterprise, in the series, and I think they killed her off because they didn't. Okay, and, and her death was totally meaningless when she died, and they brought her back in yesterday's Enterprise, and they gave her entire life meaning in that arc. That was good storytelling. And time travel was a device that they used to do it. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? No, the, uh, the, I think that's an excellent example and how you can use it to retrofit continuity, not in like the negative one, like, you know, oh, this character was problematic. We have to fix them. But in the sense of you're magnifying what was already there and you're building upon it. And when I think classic science fiction, even classic Doctor Who, the stuff I really like, it was, it was about loving detail that that really understand well, when, these characters when, and they when, just when Guinan tells Tasha you're not supposed to be here and Tasha says what do you mean she says you're supposed to be dead and then when Tasha volunteers to go back as the as the tactical officer and maybe I can help maybe I can help and and Picard says to her you realize they're all going to die and she says I'm already dead and if I have to die then at least I want my death to have meaning Okay, that was an absolutely priceless gift the writers gave that character. And they gave everyone who ever liked that character all at the same time. And that's what good storytelling is supposed to do. What do you think is the cultural fascination with time travel stories? And why do you think, at least at like the, the top pop culture level, so TV and movies, uh, why do those stories, they don't seem to have the same kind of gravitas? They aren't quite as well thought through? What do you think's going on there? I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. I think that a big part of it is the easy out, if you, if, you, know, if you look at it. Um, I mean, look at, look at the attempts to reboot the Terminator franchise, okay? 
time travel is was in, in the Terminator franchise from the very beginning. Okay, and I actually kind of liked the last Terminator movie. I know a lot of people didn't. Uh, I kind of sort of liked uh, Genesis, except I didn't see why they had to send John over to the dark side of the Force. But it was an opportunity to explore some of the other consequences of time travel. It, and, and, and that was, that was, I thought, at least potentially a good use of the, of the, of the concept. But I think that another part of it is that we come from, um, we, we are part of a culture, a society in which people want people to fix things. Okay. Now I'm a historian. I know how flipping hard it is to fix things that are baked in social issues. You can't turn a switch and change it no matter how hard you try. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be stress. There's going to be, you know, and I think that there is enough stress going on in American particular. And we, let's face it, we drive where a lot of this stuff goes because we're the, the market that you look at for it. I think that there's a lot of hunger in there to find a way in which the problem can be fixed in fiction, even if it can't be in real life. I think there's a yearning for that. And I think that's one of the attractions of it. I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of how it feels to me. One of the things that I think is the, uh, the, the appeal of time travel is that, you know, make, making mistakes and it is, you know, it's just a part of, you know, uh, being human. And, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing anything. Uh, you're honestly, not making it's mistakes, also, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which honestly is also a mistake. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, I, I think we, we've all had, you know, kind of the fantasies like, you know, I, I wish I could go back and change that. I wish I could go back and, um, you know, uh, do that differently. Um, and definitely. And one of the, uh, uh, to go back to uh, another uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation episode, I think the episode is called Tapestry, um, where uh, uh, Captain Picard has um, he, he has a uh, um, his, his artificial heart fails, and he, he he meets Q, and Q's like, "Welcome to the afterlife," and I'm going to give you an opportunity to you know go back and you know uh, undo the events where you. Were stabbed through the heart, and so you'll you'll survive this. And and he, he goes through that, and he's a completely different person. He 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 made totally he he went the safe route, and so he he he's like I I am not this person. I don't want to be this person. And um, I actually um, uh, you know, back um, uh, it's called about. 15 years ago, there was a, a, a really bad personal thing happened to me. And I remember telling my, my parents and using that episode as a, um, uh, a kind of a point. It's like, you know, if 
this this, this bad event is, is a part of me. You know, I, I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't have this. And so, you know, I need to take it as part of, you know, uh, who I am as a person and, and use it to grow rather than, you know, fantasizing about, you know, well, what if, what if, what if. Um, but I, I think, you know, it is a, uh, it is an appealing, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, fictional adventures. Like, you know, what if we could change X, Y, or Z? And a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with, you know, changing things in, in you know, the, the larger landscape of human history. Macro changes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, I think one of the things about time travel, too, is I hate to use this word because it's been used so much, but time travel is a really shorthand, fast and easy way to give a character agency. Okay, if you're going to send somebody back and he's going to go back equipped with the knowledge, the whatever that he needs, then you're sending him back with a built-in, packed-away-in-his-briefcase advantage uh, simply by how you got him there. Okay. Now you can you can turn that around. You can say yes. He winds up with his his he turns up in the past with his briefcase full of information, and the Mau Mau eat him the moment he arrives because he forgot to bring a submachine gun. I mean, you know, these things happen. Um, but one of the very good early time travel novels is Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall which is kind of a, a, a classic in the field. Um, and in it, uh, an archaeologist goes back to the, the late Roman, the Western Empire after about the time of, of um, Justinian, actually, Jacob. Uh, but he's in the Western Empire, and he's determined that the Western Empire isn't going to fall. And at the end of the book, you don't know for sure whether he succeeded or not, but he certainly has. He knows that he's changed history because events are happening differently from the ones that he knows. Um, that, trust me, DeCamp did not make it easy for him to do this, okay? But the fact that he had this knowledge and this insight and this mission wasn't what made it easy for him. It was what made him an agent of change. If, and that's what I mean when I say agency in this case. It makes your characters matter, and it's a quick and easy way to do it. And if it's done well, there's nothing wrong with it being quick and easy. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad idea, but I'm saying I think that's one of the appeals to time travel for some writers, some storytellers. I think a major problem with storytelling today is there, there, there's a sense that it's more important of the character's identity from a superficial level that it is less about what the character is actually going to do or accomplish. Um, mainstream comics are rife with this, uh, Marvel especially. Where you will literally, there'll be some, there'll be, you'll be told this is the epic spanning saga. This is even going to be, you know, the big summer event. And the majority of those comics, it's like two or three people meet, they share their pronouns. Something happens, and it could be anything. It doesn't tie whatsoever to the issue before, the issue after, none of it. And it, and then you're like, you try to tell it like this is it, this just isn't very good. I mean, I'm nothing against any, the person that wrote this or, or that you know. But it like, doesn't stick with you. 
Yes, exactly. And then they're like, well, of course, you're not allowed to say it because they say, of course, it was good. Didn't you see that, you know, all these two, there was a gay character and a black well, character. My, my wife is fond, my wife is fond of saying, name three characters from Star Wars. Bam, bam, bam. But as that said, now yeah. name three characters from Avatar. Okay. <laughs> and people are like, oh, any characters uh... from Avatar. I mean, think about it. Think about it. I'm not it. sure I could do that. Yeah, there's, I see. There's Sully. I think that's the only one name. I don't even. I can't. I can think of characters, but I can't. You can't be on this one, David. I can't I, name. I, I can't name see? three. Well, <laughs> Sharon, Sharon has trotted this out so many times. You know, people go, I, mean, I don't know. You know, kind of thing. The first, the first Avatar is like the top-selling movie ever, and it's crazy because you can't think of the like. You can barely remember the parts There's, of that but, film what it had going for it more than anything <laughs> else was the gorgeous graphics and the 3d okay aside from that it was pretty much a standard sci-fi story now you were talking about character development and and characters mattering uh er, earlier in the gordian protocol one of our characters has to assume personal responsibility for making sure the holocaust happens and because he does it doesn't do this because if he doesn't, 15 universes die. And his girlfriend in this, in this universe is a Polish, she's, she's Jewish and she's Polish. And he knows, he knows if the Holocaust happens, her grandparents will not survive. And that's really, and, and he finally, she's saying, why won't you do this? You know, and she finally says, because you won't exist. And she looks at him and she says, I love you for that, but do you think I could stand knowing that I exist because 15 universes died? Okay. So, I mean, we decided to give them a pretty heavy boulder to, to carry around with them. And that was the original concept of the novel that I had. That was the crux of the entire thing, that this guy had to assume that responsibility even and though it would destroy him and he knew it would destroy him if he remembered it and he does remember it okay now we did sort of give him a, a door out at the end but he didn't know it was coming and he made the hard choice anyway all the characters did and so i think i think that's what supports storytelling where the stories stick with the reader. It's not the clever stratagem. It's never not the clever plot device. It's, it's the, you know, these people mattered to me and they mattered to me because they had some heavy crap coming at them that they had to deal with. And I think that's one reason why a lot of dystopian fiction doesn't hang with the reader because it's no matter what you do, it's still dystopia. You, you, okay. So I think that, that, that building stories that actually speak to the audience, that stick to the audience's mental bones, as, as it were, requires you to make them care about the characters, and the characters' struggles have to have meaning. And I think what you're talking about is in a lot of more recent uh, material, it's pretty superficial. Um, in a lot of ways about how all of that comes together. One of the things that uh, um, I, 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 so one of the things about David's protagonist that um, 
I didn't realize until he kind of verbalized it to me. And I had actually been kind of subconsciously doing this with my own characters and, and now am very consciously doing it with my, my hero characters is they are responsibility takers. And so if, if you've got a, you know, a hero character in a David Weber or Jacob Hollow book, they are not the sort of characters that's like, oh, wow, look at this problem. Glad it's not mine. <laughs> I got my own it, to deal with. Yeah. yeah, they're, you know, it. They're, they're very much the sort of characters like, okay, this is a mess. I, you know, I may have been involved in creating it. I may not have. What can I do to fix it? Um, and I, I think, you know, at a very fundamental level, those sorts of, you know, heroes are very, very appealing. The changing to a different genre sort of here. I have very strong views on young adult fiction. Okay. I think young adult dystopia is poison. I think that the last thing that a kid who is already feeling uh, uh, estranged, feeling like nobody understands him, that all the adults in his life, the last thing he needs is a book that confirms that all of the adults in his life who aren't evil are stupid. Okay. What, what that young reader needs is something that opens a door that says, you know what? Yes, things are really crappy, but they could be better. And here are people who in their struggles made them better. Okay. I can't think of a single dystopian character that anybody has ever said to me inspired them to become something. Okay. A scientist, an, an astronaut or whatever. I mean, nobody has ever come up to me and said, yes, the character who inspired me to do this was so-and-so from Hunger Games or, or whatever, okay? Uh, I've had a lot of people come up to me and tell me about characters in my books or uh, uh, James Hogan's or um, Chuck Gannon's or Jacob's that have... Jacob had, doesn't have enough yardage yet for them to have made a lot of career choices. I mean, he just, he's just at, at an early point there. But what I'm saying is that the books that I think actually make an impression on young adult readers that is non-corrosive are those that don't tell them that at the end of the day, that I remember the, the, the novel, the, the heroine is a cutter, okay? And she's got friends who are, who are trans and who are gay and there's bullies and everything else. And at the end of the book, she's still a cutter, but she survived, and that's the triumph of the book because three of the other characters don't. And they were telling me, oh, this is great. You know, this will, kids will identify with this. And I'm saying, I don't want kids to identify <laughs> with this. You know, uh, color, me, color me crazy, but I don't think that's where they need to be. Why, why it is crazy? If, if he, it, it's the only thing that's pretty close to... Uh, stylistically and you know and just the low storytelling quality of the content for comics it's it's YA fiction at least uh, in well it's okay the problem is that there is a lot of good YA fiction out there you just have to find it yeah it's not going to be but it's not going to be in any place a young adult would actually find it or, or choose to read it and mm, I think that's, that's the difference there is because they have a much more built-in market that they can just slide it to the slide the product to. Whereas in comics, you have to go out of your way to find it. Even 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 if it's the most popular best book, 
you're, it's still going to take effort and money on your part to find it. Yeah. Well, and I, I can't speak to this with uh, a great deal of authority. Okay. I have three kids, uh, twin girls uh, adopted from Cambodia who will be 22 in October and their younger brother who is homegrown. Uh, will be 21 in December. He's a Marine in our embassy in Jerusalem, and in December he'll be old enough to legally buy beer. Um, and one of his sisters is in the uh, the National Guard. Okay, so, you know. And I have to say that they do read, but they are not the readers that I was or that Sharon was. Now, part of that is the explosion in alternate media that simply was not available when I was a kid. And it's more pronounced in this case because I was 50 the year my son was born. So we almost skipped a generation, if you will, time-wise in there. But I have to say that I think that the fact that there, it's almost like, it's almost like the way that the 24-hour news cycle has trivialized news coverage and commentary because you have to fill it. And so everybody's looking for a niche market. I'm going to go listen to CNN. I'm going to go listen to Fox. I'm going to go listen to MNS, MSNBC because then I'll be in my echo chamber and everything will be cool. Okay. And I think that that's happened a lot in the, 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 the diversification of literature, the number of streaming services, the number of uh, video games that are available now. And I think that it's pulled people away from the kind of literary storytelling. And I don't mean as in high literature, but I mean as in written storytelling uh, that I certainly grew up on. Um, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is really difficult to say. But when you look at what I think, especially the effect that AI is likely to have here in the visual arts going forward, I think that the change is going to do nothing but accelerate here uh, over the next decade or two. But I do think that's a factor um, in getting people into reading YA books at all. Okay. And also, I think online publishing is part of it, too. I The way that I put it is is that the Internet and online publishing is... It's the Gutenberg of the 21st century, okay, because of the explosion in the availability of books. And so the wonderful thing about it is that we get to see a whole lot of books that we never would have seen before. The terrible thing about it is that we see a whole lot of books that we never would have seen before because nobody would have published them. Do you, you see what I'm saying? There's and so some part truth of the problem, there, yeah. The part of the problem is how do you navigate through that to find the good stuff? and avoid the bad stuff. And I don't mean bad as in evil vile. I just mean as in, boy, this sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I apologize for getting a little political. That wasn't really the intent. It's just like there are certain areas where a lot of this kind of, this feeling that you have to control the narrative, you have to control authors, you have to control everyone. It's coming out from a lot of these sectors. YA is just rife with well, it. YA is definitely one of them. Okay. Um, and I personally, my political views, my, my societal views infuse the stories that I write. Okay. But if you read the Honor Harrington books, okay, the liberals are, are idiots. Okay. 
yeah, okay, the conservatives are corrupt and criminal. It's like, you know, there's, there's, there's nobody in my universe gets a pass for, except maybe for Honor Harrington, who, of course, you know, I like her. So she, I, but I anyway. Think maybe this is why I remember really enjoying reading those books about being the, uh, the out and out libertarian that I am. But, but you, but you see, the thing is that even though it infuses what I'm writing, I don't really think of myself as preaching a given ideology in there. Okay, a lot of people, when they read about the people's uh, the People's Republic of Haven, thought that I was saying that no society with any safety net could survive. It would inevitably turn into this blah, 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 blah. But if you get further into the series, you find out that what actually happened was it was a corrupt bargain between political managers and and hereditary politicians that set up, if you will, a welfare state deliberately designed to capture and control the vote. So in that sense, yes, it was a cautionary tale, but it wasn't the cautionary tale that a lot of people thought I was telling. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can make a serious mistake by assuming from the book that you know the readers, that the author's views. Um, when um, Steve Sterling wrote the first Draca novels, Oh, my God, everybody thought that he was this racist, you know, blah, 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 blah. It was awful. He's a terrible person. Okay, what he did was he made the worst villains he could possibly conceive of, but then he treated them fairly as characters. And so people assumed that he agreed with them when, in fact, what he agreed with was even villains are human beings. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that can happen. I've had people tell me exactly why I wrote a book. Um and generally they're, <laughs> they're wrong, but they know exactly why I wrote that book. And you can't, I can't dissuade them. David, <laughs> yeah, I think we've had uh, readers who uh, have yelled at us that uh, uh, the Gordian Protocol is a bunch of conservative trash. I think it's also been called a bunch of liberal trash. Oh, yes. And I'm just like, Guys, we're just trying to tell a good story here. You, you're uh, probably doing you're probably doing something right. Then, if if everyone hates you just a little bit, that's kind of how I view when I do my job too. I'm like, as long as everyone actually hates me enough, that means I'm I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I'm balanced well, if, out. If you're not <laughs> irritating somebody, you're probably not telling a good story. Okay. Now, if you're irritating everybody, you have achieved. You know. Uh, I, I don't know what you would have achieved at that point, but I, you know, I mean, another thing that is, I have people tell me, you know, I really love the hardware in your science fiction, but the politics, and I've had other people say, I just skip over the hardware, but the politics where you get into why this is happening, you know, blah, blah, blah. The one thing that almost everybody who actually tells me they like my stories likes are the characters. Okay, but if there are different parts of the overall story that are appealing to different readers, then obviously I'm doing something right out there. Okay, I, I think um, one of the, the, the greatest compliments that I was ever paid, uh, Jacob has heard this story before, uh, I was at EasterCon in the UK, which is the big it's like the national uh, science fiction convention for the United Kingdom. Um, and I was at a coffee clutch and um, 
I was the, the guest at, at the clutch, and there was this guy who hadn't said too much. Uh, but at the end of it, he came over to me, and, and Honor Harrington has her Grayson Armsmen, who are her security detail, who are supposed to die to keep her alive, and she doesn't like it, but they find, you know. Anyway, so this guy comes up to me, and he says, he says, I wanted to thank you for the Grayson Armsmen. And I said, you're welcome. And he said, I think that maybe the only instance I've seen that gets the relationship between the protectee and the detail correct. And I said, well, well, thank you. And then he handed me his card and he was with Buckingham Palace Security. Oh, wow. Okay. So I figured, <laughs> okay, I'm going to take that as an endorsement. <laughs> yes, you done good, David. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I don't know how many people have read my book. Ah, this guy doesn't know his ass from his elbow. You know, I'm sure there are some. <laughs> yeah. Does the economics of storytelling today, does that affect, do you think, the writing quality? I know both of you have experienced in different formats. I know uh, Jacob, he even writes some books with his wife. You know, some, some of the stuff you do is heavier. Some of the stuff you do is lighter. You know, the kind of stuff you'll usually find talked about in Goodreads. Um, do you think that's kind of part of the reason why some some pop culture, science fiction, fantasy is um, lightweight? in terms I, of, of a seriousness I'm, I'm going to let Jacob handle this one first. I've been traditionally published for my entire career. Okay. So I've seen the way that electronic publishing has affected traditional publishing. Okay. I haven't done indies and Jacob has been self-published and has done indies. So he's going to have a better window on that. Yes, please, Jacob. And I would say I I liked your website. You you have a author profile, not just for you and your wife, but also your cat, which uh, <laughs> I, as a pet owner, I did enjoy that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my my wife Heather and I, and 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 she she writes under two pen names, H. P. Hollow and E. D. Sky. Um, you know, we we've together put out a, a number of self-published uh, books. Um, a number of them before we had a clue uh, what we were doing um, uh, or any idea on you know how the market works uh, and or does it work. Um, and uh, she um, her, her latest series has done very well. Um, and so, that kind of informs, you know, my, my sense of, you know, how the market, uh, you know, can work and cannot work for, for someone entering into, um, you know, the self-published market. So one of the things that, you know, we did early on is that we, we published a number of solo novels. And those died off pretty quickly. Um, and in fact, the, the, the first time we, that we had a moderate level of success was with a trilogy of novels. Now, these, in terms of what has been published, uh, of my works that have been published, this is the earliest stuff that I wrote. And, and I sometimes just like, uh, uh. <laughs> I, don't get me wrong, they're, they're, they're fun novels. But I, I definitely feel that my skill level as an author has um, improved slightly in the intervening um, decades <laughs> since I wrote the first novel in that series. Um, 
And but but we actually found that by having a a complete trilogy, that that by itself uh, generated interest. Um, and so we 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 tried a, a, a few different things. Um, it, Heather has been been trying. You know, she 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 tried like uh, she she enjoys steampunk, so she she tried you know published a a, a steampunk novel, and and I actually. That whole story behind the story um, get gets into some stuff with with her OCD and whatnot. So I'm I'm just gonna kind of skip over some of that. <laughs> but um, you know, she she put out the novel and then she she struggled to write the next one because of of, of the OCD. And then we we got that diagnosed and and then she was able to to put out uh, her next three books, which was what from a new series um very rapidly uh and and those did okay-ish and, and so then we're like all right we've tried a bunch of different things why don't look, we just sort of you know study what's selling really well right now and so so we bought a bunch of those and we read through them and um and, and these were books that we were like in our also box that we were seeing in in amazon it's like okay people who are buying our stuff are interested in this all right well let's take a look and so we're like reading these books. It's like, we can do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, what happened was um, I, uh, I had some time between projects. And so I outlined five novels for her. And then she went through and, and wrote those five novels. And, and I edited them. And she just finished the, the fifth one. And it goes live in, I don't know, two or three days. Um, and by sort of tailoring you know those stories to what we saw it's like we clearly saw there was a market for this um and we we, we thought that we could uh introduce our own sort of unique spin on that market uh something that wasn't you know a an unsaturated um kind of corner of that market and so we went for it and um her her, her new series is just done incredibly well um it's blown all of our other stuff out of the water all of our previously published uh self-pump stuff and, and so we we I, I guess the the, the highlights are we, we we studied the market we we found something that you know we thought we could do well that and that there was a market for it uh we put together a plan and then we executed that plan and um, it, it has been a success. Yeah. Well, I have to say that, and this is something else that Jacob has unfortunately had to hear me say many times, uh, that writing right. is like a physical skill. Storytelling is like a physical skill. Uh, when you first learn to walk, you fall down a lot. And every time you do, you learn a little bit better, you know, a little bit more about keeping your balance, et cetera. And you keep this up and eventually some of us turn into triathletes and, and so forth. Okay. Well, writing is the same way. You start out, you produce a lot of dreck. Okay. And you toss it and you learn from it and you go on. The worst thing you write, if you're willing to look at it self-critically, will teach you something about how to be a better writer. Okay. Now, I think it's a mistake to write solely to the market, but... If it's the kind of story or a kind of story that you 
want to write anyway, okay, then looking at the market and picking your spot and doing it as that way, especially if you're self-published or an indie, is one of the sanest things that you can do. Speaking as a traditionally published author, one of the things that I had going out was a support structure that indie authors don't have. And I'm not talking just about marketing. I'm talking about editorial support and editorial input. That's one of the things that I've, in, in Jacob's case, that's one of the things that I have, have, have been. That Jacob has an incredibly steep learning curve. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by, by some of the stuff that, that he's doing here. And I think he's going to be very, very, very successful as a solo author, uh, down, down the road. I just, and not all that far down the road. Um, but when I, when I think War of Honor went to number three on the New York Times bestsellers list, and we shipped something like, I think, 70,000 copies in hardcover. Okay, well, um, Uncompromising Honor went even higher on the list, and we shipped only about 12,000 copies in hardcover. The difference was the ebooks. Okay, that's been a huge, that's had a huge impact on traditional publishing as well as independent publishing. One thing that I think is a pitfall for a lot of, of purely uh, uh, self-published authors. Very few authors can support themselves full-time as authors. And that was especially true in the days of the traditional market once you got out of the pulps and, and the, the serial magazines and whatnot. Because writing a book, getting it through the printing process, getting it distributed, it takes time, okay? And unless you're going to generate pretty hefty sales, you can't afford to spend all of that time and still pay the bills getting the books out. Uh, I was fortunate in that regard that my sales were good enough early enough on and I was poor enough when I started that I could make the transition pretty, pretty easily. All right. For a lot of self-published and, and e-published people who don't have the sales numbers, they make up for the lower sales numbers per title with greater numbers of titles. If your sell-through is shorter on a given title, you have to have, you can't rely on, I'm going to ship 8,000 or 12,000 of this book. I, instead, you're going to be like, I'm going to ship 4,000. I'm just pulling numbers here. So I'm going to have to write twice as many, okay? And I think that you run the serious risk of author burnout and audience burnout if you are throwing new titles at them every other month, okay? And I also question how good a job you can do as a writer, as a storyteller. All right, now I understand that most of the books that I'm talking about here are a lot shorter than the ones that I tend to write, Jacob. You can't whack me because we're not in the same room. Um, but, you know, it's very unusual for me to have a novel that comes in at under 190, 200,000 words. Okay, so you could saw that up into, you know, Sharon has often pointed out to me that if I was willing to do them as, as you know, 
I'm going to do 30,000 word tranches on the book that I could probably sell them anyway. And I'm like, but that story's not complete. That's not the way I tell stories. Um, but I think those are some of the some of the differences, the upsides and the downsides of of the two fields. What I think doesn't change between the two is what constitutes good storytelling is the same, no matter how that story ultimately reaches its audience. And I know the, sorry to jump in, I'll let you speak in a second, Jacob. Um, I think the economics are interesting and people might be rolling their eyes or not buying, but the economics are really a huge, huge impact on what kind of content you're getting and why it's appearing there. And I think it has a lot to do even like with the superhero fatigue as people are referring to it. I don't necessarily think it's the genre that is the major part of that problem, though it probably is part of the equation why people are, are tired of it. But I just think like you were saying, like when you're trying to make up for numbers, you're going to put out, you know, twice as much content. I think it's that situation as the as the quality of the content got diluted and we've become inured to many of the concepts that makes up that genre. You know, people just became tired of it. And I think that's kind of what's happened to comics. I think that's happened to a lot of mediums and genres. It, th there are there are still people who are doing it. They're fundamentally high quality. And they, as, as micro creators might do very well, but the genres or mediums they're in are kind of, you know, falling apart at this. Well, what, one of the reasons for that is because people take the safe route. Okay. They're not going to run risks. The best for my money, the best of the, uh, of the Star Wars movies, uh, post the, the second trilogy is Rogue One. Absolutely True. head and shoulders, the best. And they took a hell of a chance when they made that movie and it worked. And then they threw it all away when they went into the, into the next trilogy and they sucked. Uh, but that's my, my, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> did I say that out loud? Yes. Oh, I you can I go right ahead and say that out loud. <laughs> you um, know. I, I, Heather, Heather's made me swear not to bring up the last Jedi in our household anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think she was amused as we were driving back from the theater. She says she wished she had her, her phone out and it taped and had recorded me. But um, after you know the ranting continued for a while, uh, she 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 made me stop. <laughs> I I can see that. I can see. Hello, that. I am Jacob Apollo, and I have a Star Wars problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I saw. Okay, I'm I'm the only one here who can say. I saw the original movie and original release sitting in the third row of a theater, okay? Which means that neither of you guys ever saw that those ships come overhead for the first time ever, all right? All right, Lucas, now mind you, there are huge problems with Star Wars. Star Wars is in fact not a property that I would want to be involved in just because I would have so many problems with the loopholes of the technology and so forth. I'd be like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do this. Uh, Tim, Tim Zahn, who I think has done the best. Excellent, excellent author. The, and, and which there are other projects coming down the pike here in the not too distant future that should be very interesting. But he has handled that universe really, really well. Okay. I think I would have written good stories, but I would have hated it simply because of the way the universe is constrained in terms of the technologies and the and the societies involved. 
And by the way, I'm one of the people who thinks that Jar Jar was an agent of the Sith. I just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, you know, I'm convinced. <laughs> sorry. Now, I have to tell you, I was at uh, NavyCon, which was at Annapolis, and it was put on by the, by the, 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 the Naval Academy, by the, um, the, the historians up there. And it was relating science fiction to real-world uh, military problems. And there was a guy up there, Dirk, I cannot remember Dirk's last name, and I hate that because I really, really like him. But anyway, he did, um, he was in uh, 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 the op- in shipbuilding, and he did uh, a presentation on the Death Star, a success in procurement and design, <laughs> in which he explained, it was exactly what the military ordered. <laughs> which I was just like, I was like, I was like how do you motivate your personnel? Well, easy. You kidnap their daughters. You know, kind of thing. I was like, yes, he obviously had it dialed in. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, I, I think if you look at the movies that stand head and shoulders above the others at any given moment, in almost every case, it's because somebody decided to go against or step outside the current comfort zone. And everybody wants somebody else to do that first. And then they pile on and they duplicate yes, it. And there's so much stuff being duplicated right now. And and <laughs> that is a big part. Of, there are so many more movie makers now. Okay? Especially with all the stuff going, you know, straight to streaming and, and everything else. That I think that the, the, um, the artistic diversity quotient is suffering. Okay, and I think that there's a tendency when somebody does um, um, pick up a successful literary uh, property, I think there's a lot of pressure to prune it so that it's not going to step on toes or it's not going to go against the the flow of the the current um, pattern that's coming out of Hollywood or wherever. Um, at the moment. Um, the Mutineers Moon novels uh, are in serious consideration for an anime series, uh, which I think could be a lot of fun. Okay. Um, but for example, Honor Harrington, I think, would not make good movies. I think it might make a good, I think it would make good series television with an ensemble cast, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would make a good movies because the, there's so much character development over such a long period in them. But my big concern about the Honor Harrington books would be how Hollywood would handle the Graysons. Okay, because the Graysons, you know, there's going to be an awful, awful temptation to turn them into religious fanatic stereotypes when, in fact, once you get beneath the surface and begin to understand who they are, that's a very nuanced culture. Um, and I'm just afraid that would kind of get lost in the wash, if you see what I'm saying. Anime is interesting. I think Honorverse would be fine in manga or anime because that that medium is completely comfortable with very long uh, stories given in piecemeal. Yes, I think I think I think Honor Harrington might also be a good fit for anime. And I think that if Mutineers Moon is done and it succeeds in anime, then I think there would be a lot more 
willingness to tackle something the size of the universe. I, I actually had someone tell me, Dave, one of the reasons that people are hesitant to ta tackle the universe is because it's Tolkien. It's so big. And it, you know, the people who read it love it so much that, you know, they don't want to step, you know, everybody's afraid of, you know, how do we do this? How do we bring it, you know, together? I personally think that given the fact that Tolkien had been around for what, 70 years before they, they made Lord of the Rings. Oh, the movie. Um, I'd yeah. have to go back and check, you know. No, there are um, radio adaptations even just. Oh, there, there were animated. After. There was at least one animated adaptation of it. Okay. But what I'm saying is that when Jackson finally tackled it full bore, okay, big budget, big screen, gorgeous movies, movies that everybody who saw them say, I'm pissed off at him about, but God, I loved the project. Okay. Um, that took some. That took some some nerve to to tackle that project at all. And on the first three movies, especially in the director's cut, I think he actually did an outstanding job. Okay. Now, I, the one that I'm biggest, that I'm most pissed over him about is how he handled the the ints and the Sar and the Saruman arc. Because, you know, we trick the ints into realizing Saruman is the bad guy and Treebeard knew it all along in the books. And then we kill Saruman at the tower so that we don't have to deal with, you know, the cleansing of the Shire later on. I understand why he did it, but I think it was a mistake. But I digress. <laughs> this is this is the Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> I don't mind at all. In fact, this is what I'm going to say to Jacob when he says he got in trouble with his wife for being a little obsessive over Last Jedi. I think it's quintessential to being a nerd is that you care about these things, and so you are just a little bit obsessed. But that that's a that's a good thing. I mean, you don't want to like completely take over your life and like you'll never leave the house because Last well, Jedi came out. But it is a positive, well, I think. Well, to, to so um, there there's there's something about um. You know, nerd culture and being fans of various properties that I've I've kind of um, a, a sort of conceptual viewpoint that I, I've begun to take. So as you know, uh, you know, a creator in this case, you know, uh, author, you know, we we are asking the the consumer, our, our readers, to do work. We are asking them to you know understand, you know, to to get in their heads. You know, all these made up characters, all these made up places and and technologies and, and all, all this stuff. And really, for the most part, the only place any of this work is of value is enjoying, you know, the books. Um, and then but but the, the covenant is that, you know, we're asking you to do this work, but we are going to make it worth your while. That's that's the promise, and if you have a property that does not respect the work that the fans have put forth to invest in the property, it's not going to end well. <laughs> no. Yeah, and it shouldn't. It should. I think. I think. Um, fandom is a unique community and each segment within fandom is unique unto itself okay but 
I've told people many times that no one has ever written, has ever read a single book I've written, not one. What they have read is a book that I wrote from their perspective. It's a collaborative process. Honor Harrington is a different person to every individual who ever read an Honor Harrington novel, okay? Because they built their concept of exactly who she is from the clues and the insight that I gave her in the book. The better I do my job, the more of the inner mosaic of Honor Harrington that I reveal, the better job they can do of building their own visualization of what's going on. But it's a collaborative effort, and an author needs to understand that. Okay, an author needs to engage, and that's one reason why it is death, in my opinion, for a writer to, number one, write down to his audience, or number two, take his audience's acceptance of something for granted. If you're going to throw something at a reader or a viewer and expect them to believe that it makes sense, that a character would really do that, that this could really happen, then you have to set it up in a way that makes that plausible, all right? And it's not enough to say, well, historically, this really happened in thus and such a situation because they read, well, that's interesting, that's fine, but I can't see that happening here. Um, there's one scene in one of my books that I, <laughs> I removed in the editing process, I removed like three paragraphs from a point earlier in the book and intended to put them into the book again in a later point and never got them in. And the result is that one of my characters makes a decision, which everybody goes, oh, you know, she just threw the game, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because I hadn't given that reader that piece of information. I'd forgotten to put it back in. Um, and so that's on me. That's not on the reader for saying, oh, you just had her throw the game, because as far as they could tell, that's what I did. All right? That was my fault. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that Jacob was was talking about, that we have to, we have to, we do have a covenant with the reader. Okay, or at least we do with we do with readers who are going to come back and be future readers. Okay, and that is that we have to give them a story that is satisfying. And for it to be satisfying to them, it has to be satisfying to us. And that's why I'm saying that you have to write what is your story to write, not necessarily what's hot, what's selling right this minute. If you don't like vampire stories and vampire stories are what are hot, yeah, you may be able to turn one out, but it is not going to be your best work, and you're going to be shortchanging yourself and your readers by handing them something that isn't. So, so one of the things that I think um, it it I think it comes through when it's there, and that's when the creator loves whatever they're working. The the the, the love for the craft. The love for the property shines through more often than it doesn't. And, and when that love is not there, and, and you can also consider it passion, you, you can characterize it a few different ways. But when that, you know, the special sauce is missing, I think you feel it. Maybe not overtly, but it's like 
okay, yeah, I I enjoyed that, but man, something was missing. Yeah. You know, sometimes sometimes it's more obvious to the author that something is missing than there it is to the reader. I think I've had a few places where I've had to slog through a book that wasn't coming together the way that I wanted it to. And when I got to the end, I was like, okay, that's a good piece of craftsmanship, but it just, I'm, I don't have, I don't have the emotional investment in that story that I wanted to have. I think sometimes the reader can't tell that that's where the author was at the end of it, but that's the mark of a storyteller who's been at his craft long enough that he can carry through and do good work even when the 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 internal driver that Jacob is talking about and that really does have to be there if you're going to do this long term but even when it falters a little bit you can still be true enough to the craft to do good competent work even if it's not the very best you could ever have done and you have sometimes you have an obligation to do that because sometimes that story that's not coming together for you is an essential part of the longer story arc that you're telling and has to be there for the readers going forward. Uh, I do. I am a series writer. You know, people may have noticed that. I I don't know. I had no but, idea, David. Yeah, really? Yes, I thought I hit it well. You know. <laughs> But but for me, part of the problem is I get to the end of the story and I know, okay, that's the end of that story. You know, what happens next? And so when Jim Bain approached me many, many years ago and said, David, everything you're writing is spawning a sequel. I don't know. Why don't we try something, you should pardon the expression, novel and try planning a series from the get-go. <laughs> I said, oh, there's a thought. And I handed him 10 ideas. One was the Honorverse. One became the, the Gordian Protocol. One became Hell's Gate. Uh, one became Safe Hold. And one was Norfressa. So I haven't had a new idea in 35 years. I'm still working on the ones I had then. Solid list. Uh, to what Jacob was saying, I 100% I agree. I think that's very insightful. Uh, it, it is, it's been really refreshing the last uh, few months. Most of this year, I'm, I am digesting like whatever is the top trending thing. So whether it's a Disney film or Succession is on TV. But I don't really enjoy it as much. But what I've really enjoyed is like watching anime, watching rewatch of things I've already seen. And you can tell when you're watching it, something like, uh, and this may not mean anything to either you, One Piece, which is currently like the most popular show in Japan and probably arguably the most popular show in the world. It's got currently, I think it's at a thousand three episodes or something like that. It's not finished. And this thing's been made over a period of, you know, a quarter of a century. But you listen to um, interviews from Oda Echiero. And he'll talk about, you know, there's a dramatic moment in the story that's really touching, really moving. It really gets you. And he says, you know, sometimes I feel that when I'm creating and I do this and it really gets to me. And, and you can tell, you can feel it. And I think about what I've seen in, in comics and it's just been so hard to go back to that from some place where th there's loving creation taking place and you feel the special spark. And then I go over here and Marvel's like, hey, it's our new Punisher comic. Uh, Punisher's wife comes back for the dead. She says, you're a very bad man. And that's the end of the comic. And I'm just like, it's just like how, 
and it, you could tell by the popularity too. It's like this thing is, it's it's the colossus of pop culture, and it's this little thing. Marvel is just taking you know a bag full of poop, you know, lying on fire and throwing it at the fans. And I just, just can't believe what a difference well, that also, is. There's also there's also there's also this. If you as the writer, as the creator, aren't moved and touched by the story that you're telling, how can you expect your readers to be? Okay, the, the opening section of the opening chapter of uh, Into the Light, which was a collaboration that I did with Chris Kennedy in my Out of the Dark Universe for Tor, is about a father who is hears his, his six-year-old daughter dying with pneumonia behind him. They're in an encampment. They're, they're, they're starving. There's not enough food. The aliens have taken over the planet. They're all going to die. And, and it's him dealing with how do I, as a father who loves this child, you know, how do I, you know, and at, at that moment, he can't turn away from the fire to, to hug her because at that moment, he can't be strong. But he realizes he's going to have to. It's going to be his turn to become Janet, his wife, who is holding their daughter in her arms and singing lullabies to her the whole nine yards. The first time that I ever read that chapter at a convention was shortly, well, it was not that long after I had a bout of COVID that nearly did me in and, and other stuff. And I had never read it out loud. And I had a hell of a time getting through that scene because I had invested so much in those characters and what it meant for them to be where they were facing what they were facing. Um, I think it's probably one of the stronger scenes that I've written, but it I hadn't really fully grasped how hard it was going to hit me until I was reading it aloud at a convention pre-publication. Um, and it's kind of like that scene at the end uh, or at, at, in the beginning, really, of the first Romancing the Stone movie where she completes it. And she says, God, that's good, you know, kind of thing. Sometimes as the writer, you realize, you know what? I nailed that. And the times when you realize it most strongly is when if you go back and reread it, it affects you. All right. And if you can't produce that, then you are not producing what your readers deserve to have produced. That's my view. Okay. Now Jacob killed the goldfish in the first book. Well, so I, it, I it had solved to... a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Jake, we, we Jacob... call we call them the goldfish, but that's <laughs> that's not that's not who I killed. <laughs> no. So, no, no. So, so okay. All right. So we we had um in the Gordian Protocol, about two thirds of the book, um, our, our our two protagonists, a, a historian from the 30th century and our present day historian, they, they need to get historians rule. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they, they they need to get um, his uh, they need to get his grandfather uh, into the time machine, um, and you know I'm 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 going through through. David's notes, and it's like, okay, he's he's got his his, his wife. They got three kids. I don't see any names for the kids, but okay. And, and so, well, if, if there aren't names for the kids, then they must not be all that important. Okay, so I've gone oh, through all fool. David's notes, <laughs> and I'm like, 
all right, the problem is that, that Klaus Wilhelm, he's, he's, he's got a family tying him down. Well, there's a simple solution for this. <laughs> so so the, 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 the time-traveling shock troops go in, and they, they, uh, they kill off Klaus Wilhelm's entire family. And uh, then he's very motivated to get into the time machine. And so, you know, I, I, I hand over, you know, uh, the first draft uh, to David. You know, my, my portion of the first draft. And he, he comes back to me. He's like, you realize that I had intended for uh, Klaus Wilhelm's wife and, and family, the whole family, to survive and to get on, on the time machine uh, with them. It's like, well, Klaus Wilhelm was going to think they were dead, but he was going to get them back at the end. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm very sorry, David. I mean, this is, this is, you know, why I did it. But you, do, you, do you want me to, you know, take it back and, and modify the first draft? No, 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 I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. And so I'm like, okay. And so I get the, you know, the, the drafts back from him and I'm going through his notes. I get to that, those scenes and dang it. If David did crank it up to 11, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, let, let's put it this way. Since Jacob had already killed them. Okay. Um, I got inside the characters who as he says in the notes they hadn't even been named okay but i'd always envisioned them as i got inside them and i built that relationship and then i i at at the there's a scene at the end of it where the his wife has fought to the last to protect her children okay she's been basically facing the terminator with a 45 in her hand Okay, and Klaus Wilhelm is rushing to the rescue, and he gets there, and she's dying. I mean, she's she's broken, she's dying, and she's saying, the children, the children. And Klaus Wilhelm looks over at the safe room where she'd been hiding the children, and it's been incinerated, and they're all dead. And he says, the children are fine, darling. You saved them. And so then uh, Raybert, one of the time travelers, says, "Let me have her. I can take her back to the to the 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 art the, the 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 auto dock in the time ship, and we can save her." And Klaus Wilhelm says, "Can you save her daughters?" And Raybert says, "No, it, it it's too late." And he says, "Then let her go." Okay, that's what I did to you for the goldfish. Okay, I just want you to know. You Explain know. what was what is it? I don't think that's really been explained. What is the goldfish? What does that mean in this context? The, they were the, the the kids and and the wife were the goldfish. I left the goldfish bowl in the book, and when I came back, he okay. killed them all. So you so, know. so the 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 reason why we we call them the goldfish is that I made a post on on David's um, forum, and I was sort of telling us the, the story, one of the stories behind the story. And so the whole time, in order to avoid spoilers, I'm referring to his family as Klaus Wilhelm's goldfish, and and so that then became a sort of inner in. Okay, uh, so a it's joke not. between he's the saying, two he's of saying, us. He's saying in the course of writing this book that hasn't been released yet that you guys don't know about, I killed the goldfish. Okay, okay. I was I uh, was just trying to figure out is this is like is this a commentary like goldfish have poor memories no. or I no, don't know. No, 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 no. But I will say okay. that he's on he's on a reducing diet where destroying universes is concerned. I just you know I had to put my foot down on that one. You know, um, this this but, is yeah. actually a a true story. So after uh, book two, the Valkyrie Protocol, 
David Weber and Tony Weisskopf, who's, who's the head of Bane Books, they did place me on a universe-destroying diet for at least <laughs> two books. <laughs> you can't um, destroy. We can't destroy any universes in the next two books. Now, the other thing is, we had I had always visualized this uh, the time traveling guys as having both sort of a military component, sort of the grand scale where you have to deal with threats to the very existence of the universes, and also having a law enforcement function. Uh, and I was thinking of it as primarily law enforcement that would be related to misuse, abuse of the time travel, dimension traveling technology. Well, Jacob and I did uh, a, 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 uh, an outline. Jacob did a rough draft, and Tony read it and said, bleh, more or less, okay? Um, and so she said, you know, what you really need here is something that would be more like a police procedure. Well, Jacob had never read any police procedurals. So Tony and I gave him the 87th Precinct, and we didn't see him again for a month. Um, and he, he came out, and he said, oh, I love these. Okay, and the and so what we have here is the protocol novels like Gordian Protocol, Valkyrie Protocol. Those are gonna deal with macro events, and basically the protocol and the title is that after we survive each near miss extinction event in that book, there's a protocol put in place to try and keep that from happening again, kind of thing. Okay, well the files are going to be the procedurals, and they are much more into the the um, the depths of the two societies, the two competing universes that we have that have to learn to live together. And I think it is a much richer vein to mine than what I originally had in mind. I think that Jacob, I'm sorry it took him this long to meet police procedurals because I think that's what he would have written otherwise, you know, kind of thing. But he really, really has has uh, done an excellent job uh, in here. And the Veltal file is it's a clash of cultures, it's an exploration of cultures, and it's an exploration of technology and technological opportunities. You, the, the two societies, uh, the admin and Siskov, each experienced different near-extinction technological episodes that they got by. Uh, in the case of uh, of um, of Siskov, it was nanotech that basically we turned a swath of China into pinballs. It, it got out of hand. It was manufacturing pinballs, and we actually have a character in the universe who came up with the thing that stopped it. And because he stopped the pinballs, he's the pinball wizard who stopped them from devouring the entire planet. Okay. In admin, it was AI that got out of control. They had to pretty much nuke Asia till it glowed because that's where the AI was located and it was the only way to stop it. So these two cultures have very different attitudes towards technology. Siskov is all in for AI, artificial personalities or full citizens, the whole nine yards. The admin is like, no, 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 no. We have AI, but it's boxed. It's not allowed to get out. It's not allowed to do anything. Well, this creates horrendous social issues because a huge chunk of Cisco's population never had a corporeal existence at all. And a bunch of them, you know, you have you have meat parties where you transition into your synthoid body because your physical body is starting to lose a notch or two. So we have all this stuff. And a lot of it grew out of the excellent job that Jacob did in crafting these two different societies. Cisco 
is actually a post-scarcity society. Admin is in the process of becoming one. And that lets us play with models as how does a post-scarcity society handle this? And how does somebody making that transition survive the transition? Okay. I personally think that in many respects, the file novels are a richer element in, in that respect than the protocol novels are. And I think that the police procedural format is, I wish that I could say that we had been inspired to do this from the get-go, but I think it is very nearly a perfect way to do that because you get to look at both societies under stress, dealing with criminals, dealing with terrorists in some cases. And it's just, it's really, really working. And I think that one of the reasons it's working as well as it did is that Jacob has the mindset and the attitude to plan out. It's the engineer in him in part because because he's planned out how this is going to happen. He's also planned out how he's going to reveal it and where he's going to give you blind alleys that the characters go, haroo, haroo, down, and then say, well, that didn't work. You know, at, I'm very, very pleased with them. And I have to say that, you know, on, on the file novels, um, those are really a lot more Jacob than they are me. The, the, I think in the Veltal file, I may have changed a verb. I did something, something huge. I mean, I remember it was, it was <laughs> big, whatever it was. Nasty. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, there's, I, I, okay. Like I say, I sold the first novel in 89. I'll be 71 in October. Okay, like Liam Neeson, I have I have a set of skills that I've developed over that time, but they go away when I go away. Okay, I mean, you know, kind of thing. And when I see someone who has the 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 potential and the talent that I think Jacob has, if I can share some of that with him and show him how to kill the goldfish better, for example, um, then, then I think, I think I have a responsibility to do that. Okay. And I have to say that I also feel that I have been repaid several times over from working with Jacob and what he has brought to these books. Okay. I mean, totally. I am in fact about to invite him, have already invited him into another universe um, oh hell, I'll just go ahead and say, Jacob has been invited into the Honorverse. Wow. And he will be doing a series of novels covering a part of the Honorverse that I have wanted to cover for forever. They will be collaborative, but there will, and it won't be just me. It will be Jacob and Tom Pope will all three be involved in it. Um, and I really, really expect them to go well. Um, and the reason I expect him to go well is that I, he's got a track record. Okay. I mean, sorry, Jacob, I don't mean to embarrass you. Um, but, but it's, there are people who, there are people who have a gift for storytelling and at the risk of sounding immodest, I'm, I'm one of them. Okay. I mean, that's what I do. That's who I am. 
okay? There are other people who don't and who, who never will, some of whom desperately want to, but, but they, they just are never going to have whatever it is that makes you a compulsive storyteller so that you hang with it and figure out how to do it. And there are other people, and I deeply admire them, who are a natural storyteller, but who also have a sense of process that helps them reach the goal they set out to reach rather than the one that they happen to reach, if, if you understand what I'm saying. There's, it's a weakness when you say these characters are going to do what I told them to do, okay, whether it works or not. I build worlds. That's what I do. But I build them from the historian's perspective, okay? And so for me, that's, that part of it is easy because that's what I've spent 60 years of my life studying is history and, and human beings and how cultures move and evolve. That, to me, that's easy, okay? Jacob is the engineer. He's, he's, the, he's the hard, hard sciences guy, okay? And watching him build worlds and watching him build storylines in those worlds, coming at them from the engineer's perspective has just been so much fun, okay? Um, to a certain degree, we kind of approach uh, world building from opposite angles because, you know, I'll... Uh... You know, I'll start with the technology, generally speaking, and it's like, okay, well, what kind of society would would form with this kind of technology present? Whereas you're like, okay, this is the society that I want to have. What kind of... How do I build out the technology to get there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We both but end then, up but, there, but we, we approach... But see, the, well, the other thing that happens is Jacob, then his technology has to modify as his society grows and changes. Okay. And so, and, and so does mine, but I have to, as the technology changes, it drives my story into directions that I might not have intended to go. So there's, there's a, there's, however you got to the balance point where you have tech and society into your model. Okay, as the writer, you have to recognize that both the technology and the societies are going to grow and change over a period of time. And that, I think, is also a problem with some bad fiction is that they just freeze everything and nothing changes except the characters have adventures. Okay, that was part of the problem with the original Star Trek because that was how it was conceived as an episodic, you know, wagon train in space kind of thing. They, it didn't have what today we would call a story arc, okay? B5, Babylon 5, was huge in that regard in establishing the, the, you know, we have a plan for where we're going to go and where we're going to end up. Um, and I think that you have to have the plan. Okay, like, for example, in the Honor Harrington universe, Honor Harrington was supposed to die halfway through the series, Okay, and Eric Flint kind of screwed me over on that. We wrote, we did some collaborative novels and it changed the flow in which events were happening and I wouldn't have time for her to die and the next crew to grow up to be old enough. 
And I'm not, trust me, I'm not unhappy about that because I like Honor Harrington a lot. And the fact that she got to survive was like frosting on the cake for me. I think your readers are happy that that change happened too. Yeah, I was going to say that would have changed uh, quite a bit. (laughs) I guarantee you there would not have been a dry eye in the house after I killed her. Um, Well, okay. I will say this too, uh, and this is important to me. I write military science fiction. Okay. And if you read my military science fiction, you know that nobody gets a free pass. Okay. Characters die in my books. And the reason that characters die is because they're about, the books are about wars. People die in wars. And it's also because I won't write military fiction in which good guys don't die because that's porn. That's like, okay, we can have the vicarious joy of smiting the villains and none of the really important to us characters will die. And that is how people who grow up on that kind of fiction, that kind of, the, how they lightly embrace military adventures for their countries in real life. Okay. That's, I'm not, my job here is not to, is not to make, uh, uh, the realities of combat, anything but ugly. Okay. Now, can I do I can I and do I deeply admire and respect human beings who are willing to face that ugliness, who feel a responsibility to stand between the things that they believe in and the forces that want to destroy them? Do I believe that human conflict is probably pretty much inevitable? Uh, and that there can be two sides that both have legitimate cause to hate the other one, so that there's going to of course I do. Okay. And I celebrate the people who are willing to make those sacrifices and who are able to do so. But that doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't an ugly, horrible thing. And they are aware of it in my books. And one of the reasons they're aware of it is because all the people that they care about that they lose. I had a friend who was uh, Special Forces, uh, Major Mack. Major Maxwell MacGregor MacMahan. Actually, it was Colonel Mac. Um, and Colonel Mac told me one time, uh, he said, uh, the worst, the second worst moment in a combat commander's life comes when all the intelligence was good, when the plan was good, when everyone rehearsed and, and got everything down. You carried out the operation. Everyone performed almost perfectly. Almost all of the objectives were obtained. And you have a 19-year-old bleeding out in your arms, and no matter what you do, you cannot put the life back into him. And I said, that is the second worst moment in a combat commander's life. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, what's the worst? He said, the worst is when you realize this is what you do best in all the world. And there's a lot of that that I've tried to capture in Honor Harrington because she knows she's good at it. She knows she does it better than most. And she knows that if she doesn't do it, someone else will have to do it, and more people will die than have to. But she carries every one of the people who have died under her orders with her all the time. She has to learn to deal with it. She has to learn to live with it. She has to learn how to be happy despite it. But it's a price that she pays. And I think that it's important if you're going to write military fiction, science fiction or any other kind, that price has to be paid. And if it's not paid, like I say, you're producing pornography and you are cheating the reader. And that's just, that's just the way that it, that it is. Um, 
And I'm sorry, I just climbed up on my soapbox. Oh, you are you are fine. In fact, this is a good place to uh, jump off for our last question here. And I, I um, uh, foreshadowed it at the beginning. If you could pick a major pop culture franchise, and so we're not, well, uh, you guys are big book people, so we're not going to have books, okay? So we're cutting that off. That option is gone. They don't exist. And uh, you could choose something from uh, TV, games, movies. What franchise do you think you would like to to save? And I'll go first, give you some time to process for the gerbils. Um, Doctor Who, I mentioned a few times, I used to love Doctor Who, and I I really loved, like, the short stories. I really loved the the small serial audios. I liked the, the stuff that had serious authors, and they were really playing through it. Uh, what's happened to that franchise with handling by the BBC in recent years is is a hate crime. It's terrible. I'm like I'm ready to go. Like I have so many ideas. Like I know how I could say I could save it. I could resuscitate the victim. Uh, but I I don't know. Uh, Russell T Davies is there now. Maybe he'll do it. But from the previews I've seen, I don't know. <laughs> it might be don't, too don't late. Don't get me started on the last season of Supernatural. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't do not. Ah, uh, franchise, franchise, franchise. Um, this may sound a little odd, uh, but I would be torn uh, between um, Aliens and Terminator as as a franchise that I would, you know, and and both of those I realize would be really really hard to 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 bring back. But there's there's a lot in both of those storylines that appeal to me. And uh, okay, people ask me; they say they say, "Why do you write so many characters about strong women?" And did you know? Is it because you you know? And I said I started doing this in like 1989. Okay, so acquit me of of you know writing to the market. Uh, but I do, um, I, I, I like strong people. I like women. I like strong women. So I write about strong women. Okay. Although actually people have asked me how I write strong female characters and I tell them I don't, I write strong human beings who happen to be female. And I think that's really, you know, the, 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 the point of what I do with my female characters, but both Ripley and, uh, and Sarah and, you know, there, there's, those characters are iconic uh, in 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 science fiction in terms of kick butt uh, females uh, female characters and especially Sarah where she starts as the nineteen year old la la you know high school student kind of thing and where she winds up okay I would I would love to 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 do something uh, with that there are a couple other franchises that I think hiccuped and stumbled that I'd like to do over if you follow me mm-hmm. um but uh if you really did if you really did have a time machine you were like last jedi never happened we just snuffed yeah. it in the cradle yeah yeah now actually I'd like I say star wars for it would not have have been a comfort zone for me because of because of the tech now I could have done it but I would have taken it in if I'd had the freedom I would have taken it in in a very different way in terms of the tech involved, um, but yeah, I think that's probably 
where I'd go. Aliens and Terminator are a pretty good option because Disney's not doing anything. I mean, they're owned by Fox. Fox is owned by Disney now. Yeah. They, and, they just have no just idea what there. to do with them. Yeah. Well, the, the, the third in the Aliens franchise was an abomination. Um, the fourth actually was a lot better than I expected it to be. Um, I still, but my favorite scene, my favorite scene is the one with Ripley on the basketball court with the basketball, uh, when, um, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, the guy who played Vincent, uh, Ron Perlman is, is making comments about it and she just holds the ball up and just crushes it and pops it right in front of him. And he's like, ooh, okay, I'll go away and be good. That's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. But that's because I'm basically a shallow fellow. Okay. According to the myth, though, it's on the director's cut, that was actually done in one take. She actually made that basket. Didn't know if you were worried about that. Like I say, you know, the, the third one, okay, the third one basically took everything they'd accomplished in the second one and threw it straight into the crapper. Which is essentially what they did with the with the 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 last Jedi trilogy is they took everything from the original series and basically just said, you know, um, I'm gonna rant. I'm not gonna rant. I'm not gonna rant. Oh, I'm sorry, Jacob. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't go there. I didn't go there. It's okay. <laughs> okay. What about you, Jacob? If if you could ha- pick any franchise to save, you have an extraordinary literary agent, and they're able to lay <laughs> one of these gigs. What what would you wanted to be what do you think you could help i mean they're all right so i um i'm a bit of a gamer um oh really yeah (laughs) um and uh so so there are actually uh quite quite a few properties that i i would i would love to to dip my toe into there there are certainly a lot out there that have just been not managed well um run into the ground and it's like you you had such a beautiful thing why did you do this um but i i they're they're so i i gotta i gotta pick something and uh okay can i pick two you apparently you can. Apparently you can because okay. david did so all right. that's fine all right so See, i opened that door for you okay all right, so so one of the properties I just really in, enjoy the lore. I enjoy the way that the universe has been constructed to allow a lot of different stories, um, and that's uh, Warhammer 40k. Um, Interesting, be, because it it's the it's so vast that if you have like an entire planet get wiped out. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, 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 trust me. With anybody who hasn't read the Veltal file yet, they're going to recognize where you were coming from, boy. I'm just telling you. <laughs> um, but, but the, the other uh, one is, is, uh, it's a, it's a smaller property, but it's one that I, I, I really love. Um, and that's, um, it's, it's uh, the the Xenoblade slash Xenosaga uh, series of video games. Um, yeah, and... by uh, Monolith Soft, and, and uh, their yes. newest games have done pretty well. Yes, and um, I 
Uh, Heather and I, we have actually, um, for a while there, whenever a new uh, Monolith software game came out, we it was time for us to buy a new uh, video game console. So we, we bought a Wii to play Xenoblade. Um, we bought a Wii U for Xenoblade X. Um, you know, we went when uh, uh, the, you know, the Xenoblade, I think, I think, we did buy the the Switch when uh, for Xenoblade Two, and uh, when Xenoblade Three came out, we didn't have to buy a new console, so that was great for us. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Hey, they're coming out with a new game. We don't have to buy a new console. This is great." It's just the software upgrade this time. <laughs> I'm interested, Jacob, because your choices are franchises that people at the moment feel are handling things pretty well. So I'd love to hear your feelings or like how you feel like you can improve them. Oh, I. I, I, did, I didn't. Oh, I'm. I'm sorry. I missed that part. <laughs> oh, hey, I, I, I thought it was like franchises I would like to participate in. <laughs> um, sorry. I, I guess I, I misunderstood the question. So, I I think. Well, I would. I think working in anything 40k would be just awesome. Uh, maybe the only thing that 40k really I think disappoints fans in these days is the actual or is the actual tabletop game itself and how Games Workshop handles it. But, <laughs> Um, your choice for um, the Xeno, you know, that's really interesting because that game series started with uh, an unfinished PS1 title, Xenogears, which I really enjoyed, even though it, it's unfinished. Actually, um, the, the, the 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 kind of inside joke about the, the, the Velto file's name is that uh, uh, Feifan Wong's uh, gear, Velto, that's... <laughs> that's where the name came from and there are a few other uh little uh xeno gears uh easter homages would you say in, in yeah. the uh 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 a few characters character names that uh players of uh, xeno gears may may res reference uh, recognize uh, uh in the book oh that's cool no i that piques my interest i that's one of those things I wish, you know, Square Enix is doing all these remakes. I was just like, you know, there's a perfectly good unfinished game right there. Oh, I would love to see a yeah. Xeno Gears uh, remake. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, that so would see, be good. I, the, I, I've never been uh, a video uh, gamer. You know, my gaming was all tabletop and miniatures uh, and boards. And because I just, the writing got in the way, I didn't have time uh, to... I tell people that you only have X amount of literary or storytelling energy, okay? And I can use the same amount of energy to write 5,000 words or read 100,000 words, okay? And I need to write the 5,000 so I don't read the 100,000. You see what I'm saying? And I think the same thing is true where gaming is concerned. I stayed away from video gaming for the same reason that I stay away from a lot of stuff that's currently being released uh on in movies and television and whatnot okay i strayed into person of interest okay and was promptly hooked and sucked in and except for what is it that the third season i think where where they kind of go a little astray you know that's a dynamite series um especially when they knew they were on the last season they oh boy did they nail it in that the last season of that of that uh program uh, and it's a complete story arc like babylon 5 Okay, so you know, and although they left themselves an opening to go further at the end of it if they wanted to, but I think it's 
I think it's a very satisfying conclusion to it. Uh, now, Sharon and I, unscrupulous woman that she is, she agreed to watch Person of Interest if I'd agree to watch Supernatural. Now, she did not say to me the same number of episodes of each you follow. Yeah, that's cheating. Okay. That's cheating a little bit because Supernatural's got like 13 seasons, I think. Yeah, but that's okay. I got even with her. The episode, there's an episode of uh, Supernatural where, oh, not a Supernatural, of Person of Interest where Elias gets shot. And so I'm out here working in my office and she's watching there. I get this text from her, they killed Elias. And I texted back, did they? I hate you. So she goes along a little later. She says, is he really dead? I said, I don't know. Is he? I hate you. So she goes along a little more. She says, I think he's really dead. And I said, he could be. She says, I still hate you, you know, kind of thing. So then she gets to the episode. Well, she didn't realize it, but we were on a group thread with the girls. Okay. So the girls come home from school and they go up to her room and they say, Mom. And she said, yes. Oh, no. Are you going to divorce Dad? And she yes. says, no, no. What do you hate him? No, 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 no. You know? But uh, I did get my moment there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a, yeah. Little, a little context was necessary. Yes, yes. But I have to say, you know, like I've said, um, I think that the last season of Supernatural, okay, for me, they just threw the character for Chuck that they'd spent nine seasons building right under the bus. Yes. Okay. I mean, this was a guy who'd been prepared to die rather than hurt his sister again. The the scene where he's singing in the in the bar and it's his goodbye because he's prepared to die. Okay, that was they took him from this guy who was like, yes, he's just described to the 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 guy who hangs out at conventions to pick up women, you know, all the way through, and you find out finally who he is, and his whole thing is, you know, people have to learn to to stand on their own two feet. That's why I stepped away and everything. And then this whole last season, he's this petulant guy who is like, if you don't do it exactly my way, I'm going to kill you. Um, and Sharon and I, when we found out what they were going to do in that season, we sat in a restaurant at a con and figured out exactly how the final episode should have ended and everybody would have forgiven them for it. But they didn't do it that way because they didn't ask me. So maybe if there was a franchise that I would like to get my hands on to fix that would have been the one, but I would need the time machine. <laughs> yes, I, I'm with you on that, actually. I think, because I, I was someone, I agree, I think when Supernatural was on, its top was the season where Chuck, we learned that Chuck has got it. It almost ends up like, a, it's a very pro, it's almost like a Christian message in some ways, because it's, it's a very positive about Christian. Well, okay, but it's it's kind of like, okay, the, the original story arc through Sam Goes to Hell, okay, I mean, that was really the original concept for the entire series. So when 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 they didn't die, when Honor didn't die, okay, you had to keep going. And when Honor didn't die, I had a couple of books where I'm trying to figure out how to get my feet back under me to get the story back online. And I think they're good books, but they're not, they don't nail it the way that some of the earlier ones did. Okay, it's just because I'm having to adjust for things that I didn't expect to adjust for. I think they hit that. I think Krepke hit that in the uh, in that that point after that story arc. Overall, I think they did a remarkable job. They had stronger seasons. They had weaker seasons. They had stronger episodes. They had weaker episodes. But all in all, I think that that series succeeded very well, and that's why I'm so pissed off with them over what they did to that last to the last season. 
Uh, I have a workshop, video workshop on character building that I'm going to be putting up online sometime soon. And one of the examples I use of how to do it wrong is the last season of Supernatural. <laughs> but that's that's really, I mean, that's kind of part of the special part of of enjoying something that's well crafted. You know, if it's it's like one of any one of the Disney made Marvel TV shows, there's no one hotly debating, you know, what happened in an episode of Hawkeye or miss marvel no one cares it's like you watched it you forgot what you just watched there's not there's no real chance of emotional investment so the fact that you can look at something like supernatural or you can look at an old jrpg for you jacob and, and it you, you have such deep feelings and you really ponder and imagine and wonder where that could go i mean that that's just like one of those very special things about uh nerd culture being a geek that it just makes it being so fantastic on i i utterly love that sense of wonderment it's it's hard to replicate what what jacob and i do readers have to recognize that what we do is also a business it's a trade okay and we have to be able to pay the rent at the end of the day and so we have to make business decisions we have to think about it from that perspective but the point at which churning out the short-term revenue stream is more important and safeguarding the property you're working with is where you, as the creator of that property, betray the property, yourself, and your audience. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about that's happened with Disney on a lot of what they're doing right now. Okay, now, do I think there are other factors in play, other elements that they're trying to appeal to, other bullseyes they're trying to stay out of? Yes, I do. But I also think that a big chunk of it, a big chunk of it is that they have forgotten slash turned their backs on a lot of the core values that created the properties and made them successful in the first place have become less important because of other factors. And when you do that, when you do that, you poison the well of the entire literary or 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 electronic universe it and it may and like you and i think that where it becomes evident is when you say it's like you know nobody can really remember what happened in the movies because they don't care anymore i've said i've seen the same thing said about the last john wick movie okay is it's a well-made movie there's a lot of excitement but nobody grows nobody changes and i'm really kind of bored all right. And I think you see a lot of that in what you're talking about right now. And I think that that is a betrayal of the characters because they change. People change. They grow, they change, they learn new things. And your characters have to do that too. And you have to let them be who they are rather than making them be who you think they ought to be. Sounds pretty zen, doesn't it? A little. No, <laughs> I think that I think that's a, a good place to end this. That does play upon the themes of what we were talking today. I appreciate both of you taking the time to come on here. I uh, read David your books, you know, since I was a teenager, so it was kind of neat getting to talk to you. Oh yeah, make me feel old. Make yeah, me feel sorry, old. Okay, sorry, uh, Jacob. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited for the projects. You know, working in the Honorverse, all the stuff you already done. That's so exciting. So, congrats to both of you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Where yeah. can people find your work? Are, do you guys do much social media? Where 
where would you tell our audience if they liked what they hear and they want to be interested in learning more, where can they go? Jacob does more social media than I do. I did more once upon a time, but there's been a lot of stuff going on in my life and I'm not there as much as I used to be. Uh, so for me, it's going to be primarily my actual books um, right this minute. Um, and, you, you know, Amazon, Bain, um, I, I, I tend to leave, because I'm a traditionally published kind of guy, I kind of tend to leave the marketing in, in their hands. But I'm I am very active uh, on the on the con circuit. Sharon and I do between three and three and five cons a year. So if you want to, you know, get a chance to sit down and be trapped for two hours in a room with me when you meant to only ask one question, just come to a con. <laughs> you know, and yes, you too can have that experience. <laughs> Jacob. So when 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 David says that uh, I'm I'm more into social media than he is, he's actually referring to my wife. Well, who, this is uh, true, but <laughs> who who handles um, the our, our our social media accounts? Um, uh, you know, our, our books are on Amazon. Um, you know, our traditional, uh, you know, the, the stuff that's uh, published through Bain. You can of course find on Bain.com, Barnes and Noble, places like that. Um, but we also have hollowwriting.com, which is our website. Um, and, uh, you can, you can find, uh, uh, what, whatever my wife has put there <laughs> on that website. Heather, uh, Heather is great. Uh, uh, Heather is a social media butterfly and I am, yeah. you know, very, very lucky to be married to her on many, many different levels. <laughs> um, because I, would, I, I do would not concur. like social media at all. I, yep. I just I just like to go into my corner and do my writing and come back with the product and I don't want to market it. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and Heather handles so much of that for me. So I'm I'm very, very lucky to to be married to her. There there are very few people I know who are successful writers, successful creators who are married, who don't have a partner who is a right. huge part of their success. Okay. Uh, Sharon is my supporter in, in ways that are different from Heather's because she's not a social media person either, but, oh my God, when the dark lady of Manticore cuts loose at a con, you know, everybody's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, and she does not understand why people love her. And I say, well, honey, you know, kind of thing. But yes, uh, I think Jacob has been deeply blessed in Heather and I know I have been Sharon, um, and that has nothing to do with social media, but I think it's something that we both needed to say. <laughs> uh, having a reliable uh, life and eternal partner can make a big difference, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, audience, for taking the time to listen and watch. If you liked what you saw here or heard here, please be sure to subscribe either on YouTube or your podcast app. Thank you again to Bain Books Publishing and Young Voices for helping host this uh, production. And of course, shout out to my wonderful editor, Chris Holowicki, for putting this together and making me sound so much smarter than I actually am. Until next time, my friends, keep geeking out. <laughs>